The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he was descended from two mighty conquerors and went on to become a mighty conqueror himself. And in his quiet hours, he wrote one of the most potent and personal memoirs in history. The story of Babur, his memory, the Baburnama, and a new retelling of the story for children by Nepali author Anuradha. Today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Okay, okay, okay. Wow. Sometimes you catch a tiger by the tail. Lightning in a bottle. A Nepali author. That's not one that I have the pleasure to encounter every day. Well, she's here, and she's awesome. You may recall that I was in Nepal a million years ago. It is truly a kind of paradise. A Shangri-La, almost literally. Probably very close to it, geographically and spiritually, a Himalayan paradise. For me, it was a place of restoration after a very arduous trip through Tibet. I came down the Friendship Highway, settled into Kathmandu, and ate momos and tukpa and banana pancakes until I regained some strength, and visited temples, and stared at the mountains, and breathed that clean, clean air. Oh, I love Nepal and the people. So... So friendly. Our guest today gives off those vibes, that energy. It was a pleasure talking to her. And what else is our tiger? How about an author who was descended on one side from Timur, also known as Tamburlaine, one of the greatest commanders ever, a military leader and tactician almost without parallel, an undefeated warrior who was also a patron of the arts. Does Tamburlaine sound... Vaguely familiar to you, my literary loving friend? Well, maybe you're recalling that he was the hero of Christopher Marlowe's play from 1587, Tamburlaine the the Great, Marlowe's first play, and full of his mighty line, as Ben Jonson called it, blank verse, as we came to know it. Mighty line might be a better name than blank verse for what we're talking about, especially when... It's being deployed by giants like Marlowe and Shakespeare. And when the subject matter is as mighty as Othello or Macbeth or Tamburlaine, that's on one side for our man, Babur. He was descended from Tamburlaine. How do you top that? Well, on the other side, he traced back his ancestry to Genghis Khan. Not exactly a slouch in the conqueror department either. Good conqueror genes for Babur, and he himself founded the Mughal Empire. You may know the Mughal Empire for one of their other emperors, Shah Jahan, who commissioned the Taj Mahal, which I think is the most beautiful building I have ever seen. It's absolutely stunning. I recommend giving yourself at least an entire day to really appreciate it. Go early in the morning, find a spot sip some coffee or tea, and watch the sun rise and fall and change the colors and shadows on that building. It's splendid at all times in the sense of intense splendor. And it's different splendor. Changing splendor. It's infinite splendor. 
Splendor all the way down. He built that thing as a tomb for his beloved wife. Boy, if someone... <laughs> when I kick the bucket, if someone jabs a stick in the ground, I'll be happy. That's more than my fair share. A building like that? Well, she must have been a special spouse indeed. But today we're talking about Babur, the first of the Mughal emperors. He was born in 1483 and became king just 12 years later. Rebellion broke out, which he tamped down, only to be defeated a few years later. He faced some severe ups and downs in his life. What did he do? How did he ultimately succeed? What lessons did he learn? Those are good questions, and the principal place to look for the answers are his own works, the diaries now called the Babarnama, first written in what he called Turkic, his spoken language, and translated into Persian, and from there they became known to the world at large. It's revealing, this book. It's personal. He was a very literary-minded person, open enough to be amazed by the things in his world, and awake enough to his experiences and insightful enough to his own responses to them to put his memoirs in a category with Augustine and Rousseau. We are lucky to have this by an author from his part of the world and his era and from such an elevated station who was also honest and courageous and careful about getting things right. He tells us about five types of parrots and how flocks of geese change colors as they fly across the horizon or how beautiful the leaves are on an apple tree if one takes the time to look. It's the first true autobiography in Islamic literature, and it's told by a wise ruler who is still a revered hero in Central Asia. It's a great story for our own little princes and princesses, those to whom we read books. Here's a leader not much older than you. He was 12 when he was put in a position of great responsibility and great danger. How did he cope? What did he learn along the way? And so... Enter the marvelous world of publishing, who found an author to write the story for children, Anuradha, our Nepali guest today, and gorgeous illustrations by Jane Ray. Please do put this book on your list for holiday gift giving. It belongs on lots of bookshelves, on the lower half of the shelves, reachable by small hands, attached to small arms, attached to small bodies that also contain big and curious minds. Let's take a quick break and then come back with Anurada, who will tell us about this prince, emperor, and sage, and how she adapted his epic memoirs into a story for children. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, 
The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Anurada, a Nepali editor, translator, and children's book author. She's here today to discuss her book, The Story of Babur, Prince, Emperor, Sage. Anurada, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. So let's start with the history. Who was Babur? In simple terms, uh, Babur, originally named Zahiruddin Muhammad, he was uh, a prince who went on to become a king and later an emperor. And he was the descendant of two great lineages of rulers, as we know, Genghis Khan and mm. uh, Taimur. Mm-hmm. So Genghis Khan, uh, he was a, he's, he's from the mother's side and Taimur from his father's side. And we also know Babur as the founder of the uh, Mughal dynasty in India that ruled for many hundreds of years after mm. him. Having said that, I mean, uh, there are many uh, facets to uh, Babur. And I think as we go on uh, further in our discussion, we'll sort of unfold other aspects to him as well. Right. Well, maybe the the entry point into that is to talk about his memoir, his book known as the Babur Nama, which I understand is the first true autobiography in Islamic literature. So what is that book about? What is in it? How does it show the many sides of Babur? You know, like you rightly said, it's it's his memoir, but it's also part history, memoir, journal, autobiography, you know, it's it's a true uh, detailed account of his life and his achievements, his loss, his flaws. He's put everything into it. It's very, uh, it's in the form of a diary. Originally, uh, when he wrote it, it was, this Babur Nama, is, it's a translation when it was translated into Persian. Originally, it was uh, called Tuzke Babri, as far as I know, and it was uh, an extinct uh, t- uh, Turkish literary language um, that was spoken in Central Asia at that time. So, yeah, it, it, the book presents a very extraordinary and very vivid, detailed picture of uh, the life of the times when Babur lived. Like you said, it's a true uh, autobiography in Islamic literature and also also of the medieval India. Mm. Right. And he covers poetry and music and plants and animals. And it's about more than just uh, military battles and uh, weapons and his court and so on. But it's it's kind of a broad look at the life of a person in that time. It's like a magician's hat. You never mm. know what's coming out of it. It's got lots of interesting uh, anecdotes. It, it has boring, you know, uh, anecdotes of like, or simple, let's say, uh, anecdotes of when he is suffering from diarrhea to moments of, you know, when he's holding the most precious stone in the world, the Kohinoor. So you never know what's coming out of it. 
Wow. It's very fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Were you, how old were you when you read it? The thing is, in Nepal, we do not have to read about Babur or Babur Nama in particular. It's because it's uh, more of Indian history. But, mm. you know, in general, people know, as we know about other places and about history in general, I was a student of the history back in college. So, and I, I was interested in uh, knowing about the Indian uh, history as well, because we mm-hmm. are neighbors and we know each other's history. But to be honest, I hadn't read the Babur Nama before I was commissioned by Scala, the publishers for this project. So I knew about what it was and I knew more about like who Babur was, not in detail, but I knew in general about him and that he had written this um, memoir, but I had not read the actual Babur Nama until I got this project. Mm. Were you surprised by what you found in the Babur Nama? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like I mentioned earlier, I was I went into it like I was like with this you know preconceived notion of what it might be like. Oh, it's of it's it's of the 15th century um, autobiography of this uh, maybe a tyrant, a barbarian. I don't know. I mean. I just know about uh, just two aspects of Babur, that he was the first, you know, Mughal uh, founder of the Mughal dynasty in India. And he, after him, you know, it was him that built these beautiful uh, buildings and monuments and gardens in India, that part of him and the other part that he was a, he was a, uh, you know, a tyrant and he went around killing people. So it was just black and white, you know, but. When I actually read the Babur Nama, and I was pleasantly surprised to sort of see that there were there was more to him than just you know black and white. And yes, it was interesting. Do we know why he was writing this book? Was he trying to mm-hmm. convey his life? Was I, he did he admire other writers who were writing this kind of confessional style, or what was his agenda in putting all this down into words? I was trying to find, uh, look up for that answer as well, that like, why was he writing it? Because uh, as far as we know, no royal family, no royal uh, a person from the royal family had actually written any uh, memoir until then. And not especially um, who belonged to the Islamic, um, from the Islamic uh, literary background, not the Islamic, sorry. Um, I meant the from his times, you know, no, no yeah, one had written right. it as such. And so I did think about this question. And and uh, like Barber himself, he, he writes at one point that I've simply written the truth and, you know, uh, it's not to compliment myself or I'm just writing it, everything down exactly how it happened. And, and I actually agree with him because I compare uh, his, this Barber Nama with a lot of autobiographies that we read today and what fascinates me is his very distance you know his distance himself from his writing yeah at times it's very unemotional you know he's just stating the facts as it is he's writing about his achievements and how he fought in the war and killed his enemies and he became an emperor and the, on the other side he writes about his flaws he writes about his weaknesses and his fears and so, like, I didn't find any particular answer to why he would have written. I mean, I don't think it was he had an intended audience or he had an agenda. He just, I think, was writing the truth like he himself uh, says in the book. 
Yeah. There does seem to be an element of looking back on a life. And I wonder if part of it was as he felt his own uh, death approaching, he wanted to kind of celebrate what it meant to be a human being. Yes, he was always doing that after sort of almost every victory that he has. And just when you think now he's happy with where he is and and he's now achieved everything in life, there comes a line, you know, like I said, it's very unemotional. He doesn't elaborate on it, but there's just like a quick line about, so what was all this for? And, you know, it's yeah, sort of like he's looking right. back into life and this feeling of life is futile. and. Uh, it just seems to, I think he's a romantic at heart. And I would, I wonder if given a choice, uh, I think he would like to be an artist, a poet, you know, and mm-hmm. just because he was born into this family, he had to carry forward, you know, as a duty of having said that, I mean, just because you're born into a certain family, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are the right person for it. Like he was born a prince, but there were so many other princes uh, during that time who could not achieve the kind of, you know, uh, height that Barber has. So he definitely had those inborn leadership qualities and, you know, qualities of, of an emperor and he was brave and all of that. But I think it was because the duty part was and because he had a lot of responsibility at a very early age. And I think that's why he was doing what he was doing, that is fighting and looting and, you know, extending his territories. But I think... Deep within him, he would have definitely wanted to be an artist and a poet. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with Anurada, the author of The Story of Babur. Okay, we are back. So, Anurada, you have the Babarnama. It sounds like you did you accept the commission before you read it? Did you already know that you thought you could do something with this as a children's book? Or did you have to read it before you could decide that it could be a project that you could work on? I was so excited when I got this proposal that I accepted it, even without (laughs) knowing what I'm getting myself into. (laughs) Right. I was just, I said, yes, I'm going to do this. And and I just thought, oh, this is even like, I don't have to make up a story. There is a story already, you know. I just have to make it into a children's book. I, like I said, I didn't know what what I was getting into and and then once I got I, I didn't have the book here it was during the pandemic and and the shops that I had contacts with the shops here didn't have the book the Babur Nama so I had to ask someone to you know and get it for me from India and then when I read the book at first I mean it was quite fat you know the book thick yeah. book and when I started reading it was so confusing and quite boring at times because it it's like a, it's a myriad of similar names and so many places and the relationships, you know, because the uncle's marrying, he's marrying a cousin and, you know, his uncles are getting married to same women. You know, it's very confusing at first when you read the Babur Nama and it's not at all uh, meant for children if you just sort of go through it. 
it was a tough task of putting them chronologically and you know putting all the facts together when I had to sort of write it for children but yes I read through it many many times to sort of just grasp what it was all about yeah so no I hadn't read it before I said yes so let me fill in people where are you located now I'm in Nepal, the capital of Nepal, Kathmandu. Okay. And when you were reading this book that was sent to you from India, in what language were you reading it? English. Oh, it was in English. Okay. Uh, the English translation. I cannot read Persian or you know other languages. So um, it was uh, an English translation of the Babarnama. Okay. And then when you started to get the gist of it after having read it many times, what was coming out to you? Were they themes that you thought were particularly suited for the children's book that you wanted to write? I thought, what did I get out of reading it is, like I said earlier, I was pleasantly surprised at how fascinating this character was. And amongst all that, you know, chaos of what was going on around in his life in those times. Centrally, what appealed to me was his vulnerability and his, you know, the humane side of Barber. And I think that is what universally it's, you know, it's humanity. And these are the kind of uh, what remains relevant in today's time is sensitivity and, and honesty and self-understanding. And I think for children, of today, these are what would appeal to children as well. So there was a lot of violence in the book. So to cut down and filter those sections and just to draw out the theme of this coming of age, the Babarnama is divided into three parts. So the first is all about his childhood times when at 12 years of age, he becomes a king. Mm. And then the second part is when Babar is in his 20s. And it's more of coming of age kind of story, but with a lot of responsibility, a lot of war and, you know, like emotions and his getting married, getting divorced, a lot of things happening. And the end part, the third part is, which makes up for when he's in Kabul and his, when he wins, uh, when he goes to Hindustan and, and the final days of his life in Hindustan, in Agra. So when the whole book is divided into three parts and from all of it, the theme that most touched me and I thought would be appealing to children was how this little boy of 12, you know, how his life changes as he grows up and he learns from his mistakes and his winning wars and his losing sometimes his little battles, personal battles as well, but then learning and moving ahead. So I thought what is relevant today about his vulnerability and sensitivity. Those are the things I held on to while writing the story. Yeah, it does seem like it could really put a child in the place of thinking, what would it be like if I was king? And uh, there were a couple of things in, that I noticed that uh, seemed to really resonate with me where there's a point where he describes how being king might mean that people are trying to poison your food. And he says at another point, winning a war doesn't mean that you no longer have enemies. You might have new enemies after having won the war. And it it just seemed like that kind of um, 
a sort of lesson that maybe a child wouldn't be thinking about from the outside of thinking that a, a king or a great victor in battle would be sort of a champion and a winner and all their problems would be solved. But instead, it comes with a lot of reasons to be afraid or or reasons to have regrets. Yes, definitely. I think the part that you're referring to is when he's in India and um, he's won the war in Pan and the Battle of Panipat and Abraham Lodi's mother tries to poison him uh, with the help of the cook. She poisons his food and very early in life as well, he had faced a similar situation where he had to worry about his own uncles and brothers trying to kill him. And so he says that um, it's having more enemies when you win a war and that uh, you need to be careful. Everything's not hunky-dory. You know, when you are a king or a prince, it comes with a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. And that treating your soldiers well is important and that if you're too arrogant with them, they might just leave you and that you, uh, if you rule with too much tyranny, it can backfire. Absolutely. Uh, that's why he makes sure that after every victory, he rewards his begs and soldiers and everyone who's helped him and also distributes the loot he distributes it amongst his among his people and even after he uh, he wins in uh, after his victory in india he sends stuff back to kabul so that every household uh, gets a little bit of what he has conquered in the war and also he says that when he throws this extravagant parties and lots of people come to him with gifts and praise him he says that not every Everyone is your friend just because they are there when you have everything. You need to be careful how you choose. Your, you need to know who your f- real friends are. Mm. So he's, he has a lot of wisdom uh, in terms of understanding the world and relationships. Right. And then also for children, in addition to the wisdom, there's just a lot of excitement and his curiosity is kind of infectious. And I really enjoyed the the descriptions of the places he went to and the objects, the fruits that he encountered and the animals, the elephant and the the large jewels and kind of the, the snowy peaks. And just uh, it reads almost like a, an adventure story as well. Yes, it, it does sound like fiction sometimes, you know, when you read through Babur Nama that all this happened. And uh, I was uh, particularly... Um, uh, worried that, you know, will I be able to present this history in such a way that it captures the essence of the world of Babur on one side and is also appealing to the children on the other hand without distorting history because I put in a lot of uh, fictionalized, a lot of things in the story. And yes, the children, I think it's the inquisitiveness and his awe and, you know, the childlike innocence he has when he sees something new and he describes in detail. He's so articulate about, you know, the details of description. And so I thought like any child would be interested to know about the life of a prince, but also would be questioning just as Barbara does in the story of every new thing he encounters. He has questions about the elephant, uh, the rhino, the monkeys, the snowy peaks, everything. He's, he just wants to learn so much. And I think that that is what children are like. Mm. So I think that's what, what the children can relate to in the story. Yeah. 
Now, was it a challenge to turn it into a book for children? And is there anything in the Babarnama that you had to leave out, whether because the the themes were too much for grown-ups or it wouldn't appeal to children or be appropriate for children? Yes, if you read the Babarnama, it's definitely not for children. And it has a lot of violence in it. I remember um, the kind of punishment he describes is when the enemy is uh, caught what they did was they stripped his skin and to some of them, they just beheaded them and others, they were trampled by under elephants, you know, that kind of barbaric uh, descriptions. And all of that had to be, you know, removed. I could not include that in this children's book. So I could just go as far as saying she was punished or he he sort of, they were exiled, you know, I, I could just go to a certain extent and then not write about the graphic descriptions um, that are in Barber. I also had to make sure there's so many names, like I said, oh, right. <laughs> similar kind of names. And it, it was so difficult for me to understand. So I think for children, it would be just not right to have all the names in the story. It was a tough task for me to decide which characters to include and which not to. But I was... Um, very lucky that the publishers and the editing team, um, Neil and Beth, both of them sort of helped me through it. And we uh, decided on what we should be doing, uh, which parts to keep, which not to keep, and the length of the story, the words, uh, choice of words, the content part, all of that was not decided only by me, but but as a team, we decided that. But yes, it was difficult. The challenge was to make it a story and not read it like a biography for children or autobiography. Right. Even if someone didn't have an idea of who Babur was or of the Babur Nama, I think the success lies if a person can enjoy the book just as a story and not as something that really happened in history. So, and, and I had to, you know, uh, be able to narrate that history as fiction without distorting it, like I said. So that was a challenge. And speaking of your team, I'm holding the book in my hand now. The cover and the illustrations are just beautiful. Did you have any role in that? Was this, did they come as a surprise to you? I know uh, I want to give the illustrator credit here. Jane Ray is the woman who put together the illustrations. Did you suggest passages that you thought would make good uh, pictures? Or did she just read the text and decide what she thought should be illustrated? You know, it's an absolute pleasure and honor for me that uh, Jane is illustrating this book. I love her illustrations. And I mean, what could I suggest her? I mean, that I wouldn't dare sort of tell her what to do with the illustrations. But it's just um, it's just that uh, she was so kind. This book has 12 chapters and there's an illustration for each chapter, one illustration for each chapter. So what Jane would do is I would write the chapter, send it to her, and then she would read it and make one illustration based on her overall impression of that particular chapter. So it wasn't about a particular event in the book, but just an overall impression, uh, which could also be uh, you know, related to a particular event. And then she would send us a black and white sketch of what she's done. And I mean, you must have guessed. We would, we would just say, "Oh, wow, this looks great," and you know, there was nothing too much to com- comment on. And then she would send us again 
the final colored version. And we were just in awe. I mean, I personally, the way she sort of, her illustrations, they are so, the colors, the imagery and the detailing, Mm -hmm. you know, it's brilliant. And we could just say, oh, we could just praise her and not much, but she was very kind. Sort of, if we had some kind of suggestions or comments, she would like, you know, happily, I hope happily, she used to take it and and then make certain changes if we actually, you know, sort of wanted some kind of change. She was very open to any kind of feedback we gave her. I remember um, discussing that we were already into third, fourth chapters and there was no female character coming up in the illustration because it was a very male-dominated story, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially those times. And so the role of um female characters was very less and it was already like three or four chapters and we still didn't have a female character and we did discuss this and then she has two times um the one is the illustration of abraham lodi's mother and the other one barber with his wife and child so yeah we did have discussions in the within the team but i mean we trusted her uh, for what she does we had full faith in her as you can see she has done a brilliant brilliant job of with the illustrations. I'm very happy. Yeah. I mean, you could almost hang these on your wall. Yes, I actually, um, <laughs> uh, I actually thought, I mean, I could just print it out and frame it and hang it. It's beautiful. And I was, it's like difficult choosing. Like, for example, uh, when the, um, the chapter where uh, Babur is in Hindustan, his first battle of Panipat, um, if you look at the illustration, I was I was sort of uh, worried and also curious. How is Jane going to illustrate? Because that whole chapter is about war and about you know elephants dying, uh, soldiers dying and killing and arrows and cannons and it's all so violent. And I was so worried and also curious, like I said, as to how she's going to present that in an illustration. And have you seen that? page that illustration oh my god I mean, it has the arrows and it has the, the elephants with the colorful armor and the people with their their swords drawn and it's it's very exciting and there's a lot of movement and action built into the the picture yes and there is blood as well i mean it's the colors but but it's not gory i mean it's not uh, like for a child reading this book i don't think it's you know it would cause trauma you know it's just like a part of the story you know it's a smooth um uh, just just a chapter where there is this battle going on she's so beautifully and perfectly illustrated this page and i was just you know i was like wow this is this is wonderful (laughs) and chapter one the beginning where he's sitting and looking up at the moon it just sets the tone for the whole book for the whole narrator it's like you get that feeling of contemplation and peacefulness, even as you know, you're about to read about a lot of battles and the excitement of becoming king and all of that, but that this, the tone of it is going to be one of reflection and wisdom. Correct. This, in fact, was the first illustration in black and white that she shared with all of us. And I was so excited just looking at this and I could, I was imagining how it would look with all the colors later you know when once it's final 
but I was too excited and I was requesting my publishers, like, can I please post it on Facebook and, you know, just tell the world, <laughs> show this picture. And they were like, no, not yet, not yet. So I was very, that was the first picture. And you so rightly said that it sets the whole tone of the story, even right to the end. He's still lonely. He's, you know, uh, sort of a refugee throughout his life. And this was a very emotional, um, very uh, personal moment for Barber when he just after his death of his father and he's he's the new king and everything happens so quick and at night he looks at the moon and and misses his father yes it's a beautiful illustration it's a beautiful illustration and a beautiful book uh the book is called the story of Babur, prince emperor sage Anurada. thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature Jack, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I'm I'm so happy that I could share um, some of my thoughts with you about the book. Uh, well, thank you. And I wanted to say, too, I hope people do go out and take a look at this book and look through it at the bookstore and consider buying it for those children in their lives, because it really is a book that belongs on people's shelves. I hope the children like it. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Anurada for joining me. Wasn't that fun? I feel energized, like I just drank a cup of coffee. Actually, I am drinking coffee. Maybe, maybe that's why, but no, I think it was Anurada. Uh, I feel like I could go climb one of those Himalayas. Save the Annapurna circuit for me, my friends. I will be there soon. Nothing would make me happier, except maybe if you run out and buy Anurada's book and give it to that little one in your life. Next time, we're going to revisit a book that is now 25 years old, hard to believe, Harold Bloom's Western Canon. Where did he swing and miss? What can we add to make that book better? We've had 25 years to think about it. Time for a good updating. And then I think we'll... Finally make it to 1930s London and the world of spy novels. What a good time for spies to get busy. This nations marched steadily toward war. But what was a nation? Everything in that decade seemed up for grabs. Which is where thriller protagonists love to be. Grabbing and getting grabbed. Fighting and fleeing. Getting arrested and arresting us with their daring do and what they dare to do. Stealing secrets and, perhaps, stealing our hearts. Mm, who writes this stuff? <laughs> it's time for another round of Firing the Interns. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.